Welcome to the Q&S podcast. Each episode, we take a look back at the news in Queens. I'm Jacob Kay. And I'm Angelica Acevedo. On this episode, school's chancellor Richard Carranza abruptly ended a meeting with parents in Bayside after he felt things got a little out of hand. We talked to reporter Jenna Bacall about what happened at the meeting and what's happened since. And we talked with Lauren Ashcraft. She's running for Congress in New York's 12th district. She tells us about her campaign and her career. Let's burrow in. School Chancellor Richard Carranza is in hot water after he abruptly ended an education town hall in Bayside on Thursday, January 16th. Carranza said he was concerned that the meeting had taken an unproductive turn after the father of a girl who had been sexually assaulted began to tell his story. The father feels the assault has been covered up and swept under the rug. Parents began yelling and pleading with the board to let the man speak, but the meeting was canceled, only 40 minutes after it had begun. Reporter Jenna Bacall was at the meeting and has continued reporting on the story ever since. Hey, Jenna. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, so just to begin, can you describe to us what the meeting was like? So from the moment it began, it was pretty contentious because parents were out there like outside of the school um, which was MS 74 in Bayside. They um, were holding signs that were accusing Carranza of being uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Asian and you know when he was introduced um, to the crowd they began booing him so you know it was kind of not starting on the right foot. So um, basically how the the town hall began was there were pre-submitted questions that the CEC 26 um, asked for from the parents. Uh, They were pretty standard questions about how the schools were going to get funding, how they were um, going to you know promote school safety. But, you know, it it took a turn once uh, one of the parents called out from the crowd. Um, He was just asking for a minute to speak directly to the chancellor about the sexual assault that had been going on um, at MS-158 between his daughter and a fellow classmate. It was probably around around 40 minutes into the meeting. Um, He called out, said he wanted a minute to speak um, after uh, the superintendent, uh, Danielle Junta, She had just finished speaking. He said, can I just have a minute? I don't mean to interrupt. And he basically just wanted to tell his side of the story and ask what was being done because he thought that nothing, you know, meaningful was being done for his daughter because at first the school kind of didn't tell him that the sexual assault was going on. They thought that it would be okay to just tell the boy's parents, sweep it under the rug and not really suspend him. So he was able to go to school while um, the victim, his daughter, was kind of scared for months from, you know, September to December. And you learned this after speaking to him. Was it during the meeting? Yeah, I spoke to him during the meeting. He was just disheartened that um, they wouldn't let him speak and find out what uh, repercussions were going to happen. Um, And all he wanted to do was talk. Did he get a chance to talk? Did he get any answers? Do you know? Um, he didn't. Uh, I do know that he went to a PTA meeting maybe a week later for District 26 parents and was able to, you know, express those feelings to the superintendent, Danielle Junta. Um, I don't know what answers he was given there, but he was at least able to air it out. Was there anything else in that meeting that was discussed or that parents were up in arms about? 
It was just general school safety. Um, There was another parent whom I didn't get to speak to. Her name was Caddy Sterling. Her child was involved in a physical altercation, her child and another student. Um, And she also thought that the school had done nothing to help um, her child. Right. And this was at MS? MS-158 as well. Um, So she basically said that her child was at home scared while the other student was able to stay in school with basically no repercussions. Um, And she thought that was very unfair. Did they say anything about that? She went up to the stage directly to Carranza and was basically yelling this at him. And, you know, a few moments later, they announced that the meeting would be over. I feel like you've also been telling me, like, you know, people have been talking about how they have to, this doesn't feel like a public hearing. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, to me, feel like a public hearing. It felt more like a very filtered question and answer session where people were able to, you know, just submit questions beforehand, but not get any real answers for problems that may have been a little more serious than the questions that were submitted. So um, as a result of that, um, lawmakers and parents, the, the Community Education Council have been requesting for another meeting to discuss uh, public safety just by itself because they think that it's a standalone uh, concern that's very important to the whole district, not just what's going on in, in MS-158, but what's happening district-wide. The CEC 26, they put out a statement about it and you reported on it. Has there been any answer from Carranza? No, I reached out to the DOE for a statement and their spokesperson said that they've uh, put in more safety officers. They're working to kind of go over school protocol with um, teachers and they're also trying to dis- to, to find a time to, to do the meeting, but they haven't confirmed whether or not they would be doing it. And you also briefly mentioned how lawmakers also said something about the meeting. Um, so lawmakers basically wrote a collective letter, Northeast Queens lawmakers uh, from the federal, state, and local level, addressed a letter to Carranza. They were basically demanding answers for the events that have happened at MS-158, and they also demanded that he reschedule this meeting uh, for the parents. Uh, Some of these lawmakers were Congresswoman Grace Meng, Senator John Liu, uh, and Councilmember Paul Vallone. All right. Thanks for talking to us, Jenna. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Lauren Ashcraft is running for Congress. She's one of several challengers taking on longtime Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney in New York's 12th district. The district is a weird one. It covers parts of Northwest Queens, but also parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Ashcraft is a DSA member, and she says she's running on a campaign of representation. It's grassroots, and it's progressive. We spoke with her by phone last week about what she hopes to achieve, when she decided she was a socialist, by the way, it's not in a place you might think, and a little about her career in comedy. Thank you, Lauren Ashcraft, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. So just to start, do you mind just telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Lauren Ashcraft. And I'm running for Congress in New York's 12th district, and I'm doing so because I have a vision that every single person in the district and also across the country has full and equal representation. And unfortunately, right now, that isn't the case in the district or country. And we see 
prioritization um, going to huge corporations and billionaires and the 1% um, time and time again, while the working class people and the most vulnerable people are struggling to survive. And my family is actually an example of what it is to have representatives not watching out for your best interests, unfortunately. So my grandfather was a coal miner and was killed in an accident in a coal mine because of corporate greed. And his wife, my grandmother, was a Japanese immigrant who was left to feed her family with very small social security checks as a result of the accident. And also, meanwhile, was facing um, an incredible amount of racism and xenophobia as, as an immigrant. And when we look at how immigrants are treated in this country now, we haven't, we haven't improved and we haven't fixed that problem and we haven't fixed our immigration policies. So we absolutely need to address that and make sure that people seeking a life in this country are welcomed and that um, we don't treat them as outsiders. Uh, on the other side of my family, my grandfather, uh, my other grandfather fell while he was working and unfortunately became a quadriplegic. And I saw my family become his caretakers and um, I saw the family home needing to be uh, made accessible. And I also saw him getting completely ignored by representatives in that um while the family was was bearing the cost and making sure that um, we were doing all we could for him, and there wasn't a net there to help him. Not enough representatives are talking about how to make sure that every single person has a livable wage and can live with dignity. And when I look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is 29 years old, it's very important, and it does the minimum. But when we look at the fact that most of the subway stations in New York City, for example, are not accessible, and in my district alone, there are about 53,000 people that identify as having disabilities. When we think about the fact that 53,000 people have gone ignored in my district and aren't welcome on the same public transit that I use every single day, and aren't welcome in so many places throughout the district and city and country. And we have a major problem, and it's really uh, illustrating how entire groups of people will completely ignore it and slip through the cracks because that priority is on the 1% in the corporation. I am here running a campaign to make sure that every single person has that full and equal representation. So, so the race for the, the 12th Congressional District is, you know, the incumbent Carolyn Maloney is facing three challengers, you being one of them. Um, what would you say to people who might think that the three challengers, who all consider themselves more progressive than Maloney, what would you say to someone who thinks that you might just end up splitting the progressive vote uh, and handing Maloney the win? I think um, anybody who's challenging um, Maloney or an incumbent right now I'm hoping the same as me that the goal is to bring true representation to the district and that goal, that goal is greater than any one of us. So I'm, I'm going to be really curious and also everyone that's watching should watch as well. Um, 
watch for our momentum, watch for endorsements, watch for fundraising, and watch who's out in the district and um, knocking on doors and has a really uh, serious plan to victory. And I know that my team, we have been out on the streets knocking on doors and reaching out to voters since March of 2019. So we are really, really in this and feeling really, really good about the momentum that we've gained. Um, I do have the Brand New Congress endorsement and many other progressive groups, um, which are listed on my website, have have backed me. And also through our canvassing and outreach efforts and thanks to our amazing um, field staff, um, we have been able to reach an incredible amount of people in the district and connect with them and listen to the issues they're facing. And that's really the priority of this campaign is to listen and know exactly how people want to be advocated for. So um, it, it is a concern that it's such a crowded race. But on the other hand, I think that it will narrow itself naturally in the coming months, specifically when we're petitioning to get on the ballot. And also, um, I think it will narrow naturally, just given uh, momentum and, and who has a plan for victory. So you you, you talked a lot about uh, representation, um, and the 12th congressional district is a very strange one. You have, you know, it's it's home to Queensbridge Public Housing, and it's also home to, you know, one of the most wealthy buildings in. The United States uh, on Park Avenue. Um, how do you how do you represent a district that's, you know, has has people living there so opposite sides of the spectrum? I, that is that is exactly why we need this true representation and somebody that represents what it's like to face everyday issues um, because we I do see the prioritization being um, given to you know, the Park Avenue and Upper East Side when Carolyn Maloney is fighting for um, expanding the 2nd Avenue subway line instead of prioritizing making the existing subway stations accessible to every single person. So um, it, District 12, it does represent the inequality faced throughout the United States. And what we can do is make sure that we're elevating the working class people who've fallen through the cracks and who haven't had that advocacy for them, um, we can elevate people in a way that empowers them economically and decreases that inequality that is is just so obvious with, within this district. I know you've answered this question before, and I'm sure it's probably an annoying one to answer, um, but you, you're a member of DSA, correct? Yes. And Definitely not annoying. <laughs> no, that's not the question. Um, <laughs> um, you you also worked at J.P. Morgan Chase. Yes. Can you can you explain a little bit about what you did there and and how you kind of square the two, being a DSA member and working formerly at J.P. Morgan Chase? Oh, absolutely. And this is a great question. Um, so working in the financial industry is actually where I became a socialist. I mean, I saw with my very own eyes every single day that the, that the corporations get all these handouts. And just an example of this is the tax cuts that Trump granted um, huge corporations. Uh, and 
whenever you think about the fact that J.P. Morgan um, publicized that they were able to claim an additional, I think it's $3.7 billion in profit because of uh, resulting from those tax cuts. Whenever you think about that and where those tax cuts went and whenever you're thinking about the financial sector, um, how those tax cuts impacted the average everyday working people in it. When I think about my district and the fact that um, about 14.5% of the district is working in the financial sector right now, and a much higher percentage that isn't currently working in the industry has relied on the industry to pay their bills and to pay their rent. When I look at the Trump tax cuts and think about the fact that we keep, as a society, thinking that those tax cuts trickle down and positively impact the entire industry and the working people in it, it's just not true. And I saw that with my very own eyes, um, and it's, it's all through the news and in many, many articles that these tax cuts, especially in the financial sector, where a lot of these companies have their headquarters in New York City, that these tax cuts ended up being the bonuses and pay raises and stock buybacks for the CEOs and the senior executives in these companies. Whenever we look at whether there has been a decline in layoffs in the industry, the answer is no. And whenever we look at, um, I believe, multiple different banks and financial institutions are increasing relocation outside of New York City because it's cheaper. That means that people in my district who are relying on on their jobs to pay their bills and to feed their family are losing their jobs. These handouts have never, ever benefited the average people. They end up just being bonuses and pay raises for the people at the very top. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want to fight very actively and loudly is I have this experience in the financial sector. Um, I, I want to use my experience and knowledge of how the industry works to sit on something like the Financial Services Committee and to represent people and not the CEOs and the senior executives at these banks. You're also a comedian. What is the funniest thing about politics? <laughs> oh, sometimes... The situation we are finding ourselves in is just so, so horrific that if you don't step out and occasionally, like if we look at who our president is and what he tweets, if you don't occasionally give yourself a few seconds to just laugh at how ridiculous it is, and then when those few seconds have passed, then get back you know, get back in the zone and work towards getting him out of office. But by all means, if, if we don't give ourselves the liberty to laugh at how ridiculous everything is right now, then I think we lose a sense of ourselves. And, and, and there's so many comedians that just find a lot of material in Donald Trump right now. I, I actually don't have a lot to say about him because I don't, I can't take a lot of artistic liberty in changing anything because it's just that absurd already. I, there's nothing I can really do as a comedian other than just 
read exactly verbatim what he's saying. So Trump, Trump is a joke, and it is our job to highlight that and make sure that we get him out of office so that we can move in a direction that's much, much healthier for every single person in this country. Well, thank you so much, Lauren Ashcraft, for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on and, and highlighting our grassroots campaign. And if people want to learn more about my campaign, you can find out about my platform and my background at laurenashcraft.com. And also follow me on social media at Vote Ashcraft. Looking for something to do this week? We've got you covered. In celebration of Black History Month, the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning is presenting The Meeting, an engaging and intelligent play that depicts a fictional account of a secret meeting between Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The show opens on Saturday, February 1st at 2 p.m. Tickets are $5. For more information, visit www.jcal.org. For centuries, people in China have celebrated the Lunar New Year in temple fairs. And this weekend, you can celebrate the Year of the Rat at Flushing Town Hall's Lunar New Year Chinese Temple Bazaar. There will be live performances, hands-on activities, and food for the family to enjoy. There are two different sessions, both on Saturday, February 1st, but one's at 11 a.m. and the other's at 2 p.m. Tickets are $5 or $3 for members, and it's free for teens. The Bayside Historical Society is celebrating Valentine's Day early this year. They're inviting families to spend an afternoon of food and arts and crafts activities. The event will be on Saturday, February 1st from 12 to 2 p.m. Tickets are $5 per child or $15 per family. For more information, go to www.baysidehistorical.org. That's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in, and be sure to head to qns.com to get more Queen's news. This episode was produced by me, Jacob Kay, and Angelica Acevedo. I edited and mixed the show. Our reporters are Genevieve Call. Carlotta Muhammad, Bill Perry, Max Parrott, Angelica, and me. Our editor is Zach Welb. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is brought to you by Schneps Media. See you next week.